From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. August. Well, that means it's time for kids and parents to start planning for back to school. Shopping for school supplies and, and new tennis shoes, well, that's just a small part of getting ready for the fall semester. On today's program, we'll get some helpful tips for back to school and discuss immunizations needed for school-aged children with a Mayo Clinic expert. Children should learn to go to school even when they have aches and pains, a little bit of a... Uh, of, uh, the sniffles or their allergies are flaring up. Those aren't real reasons to stay home. Also on the program, the warning signs of depression in adolescence. And how much sleep does your student need? All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, it is August, as you well know, around your household. And uh, in the next few weeks, the kids are going to be going back to school all across the United States. Not that I'm keeping track at all. <laughs> now, while some kids may be excited, you know, to go back to school, and others might be a little nervous or a little apprehensive. And one thing that's worth talking about at this time of year is the importance of good hygiene habits. You know what kids can do from getting sick during the year. And it's similar to the things that we do in the hospital to keep ourselves from getting sick and keep from spreading disease among the other patients. Here to discuss getting ready to go back to school is Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Bob Jacobson. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Jacobson. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Bob Jacobson, it's always great to have you on the program. And I suspect this is a pretty busy time of year for you with parents bringing their kids in for a little tune-up before school. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's. Uh, time when parents, one, because of summer, have the kids at home and have more of a schedule to make those visits, but also have the pressure to get forms filled out for sports and to uh, catch up on vaccines that uh, might have uh, been let go for the last uh, years, and it's now time to get those 11- and 12-year-old shots in or the preschool shots. Uh, it's also a time for parents to think about uh, with the excitement of school, the new clothes, the books and papers, and getting ready to meet the teacher, for them to consider a few other things things that they can take advantage of the new year. And it is a sense of a new year, and it is exciting, and the parents can build on that to create new habits for their children or to restore habits that have gone badly over the summer, such as getting a good night's sleep. Children often need 10 to 12 hours of sleep, and parents so frequently give up on the rules in the summertime for so many reasons. So do you see a, a, a fair number of parents who bring their, their kids in because they're apprehensive about going to school. I mean, I remember, I don't know about you, Tracy, but our son, our daughter was fine. You know, girls, they like school. But it, Each kid is different, that's for sure. Our son was not only apprehensive about going to kindergarten, he refused to go. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, why would you go to school when you could be at home and your mom takes care of you all day and do whatever you want? But is this a problem for, for some parents? It really varies from child to child. So a family of three children can think that they've got it down with the first two and then be surprised by the third one who has real troubles. And parents may not see it at first. It may not show up in that first week of school. But as assignments uh, start getting assigned, as children start differentiating themselves, making friends or not, um, children can start struggling with abdominal pain that might keep them out of school. And that might build into a cycle of using pain to avoid Mondays. And parents really need to watch. 
um, because for the most part, children should learn to go to school even when they have aches and pains, a little bit of, uh, of uh, the sniffles or their allergies are flaring up. Those aren't real reasons to stay home. Uh, if the abdominal pain is so severe the child's not eating and can't really move, they should be in an emergency room, not at, not at home in bed. When it's a dull ache of anxiety or discomfort, the parent really should be talking them through that and explaining how it's important to learn how to get through your day even when you have a belly pain or a headache. Um, and that's where a parent can be helpful with firm rules about school attendance as well as um, saying, you know, if there are things at school that are bothering you, let's talk about it. But let's not just make it so that you can't go to school. So what what do you tell parents? How do you help the parents uh, guide the child and, and help them get over their nervousness and their apprehension about school? I think the first thing is pick a non-threatening time of the day such as the end of the day, uh, the afternoon, the weekend, to talk about those things rather than right before going to school. That's not a great time to have a discussion. The child's already apprehensive. Uh, what the parent needs to say, you know what, I want you to make the best of it. I want you to get on that bus. I want you to get to school. We'll talk about the end of the day. Let's make a special date, you and me, at the table, just the two of us, and find out what you have to tell me. But I want you to make an effort. Now, if this is persisting day after day, week after week, it's time to call up the teacher and find out what's going, what the teacher's observing, uh, and get the teacher's help. Maybe a one-on-one meeting with the parent and teacher can really help clarify some issues. You know, we really encourage parents to think about um, contacting the pediatrician or family physician when they're having these concerns that are persisting. Uh, we can get a therapist who might visit with the child one, two, or three times. Nothing like long-term therapy, but just a few visits to help the child meet with someone outside of the home and sort of get some um, some uh, bearings uh, and some uh, some logical discussion about what they're seeing and not seeing and what they're thinking and not thinking. And that can often help a parent move forward with a child who's struggling. Uh, the mental health aspect of back to school, and certainly something that we never, any of the three of us, when we were going to school, never had to have conversations about was bullying. Um, although now you know better, you do better, hopefully is what's happening. What if kids are remembering, I didn't have such a great experience last year, and so they're starting to feel a little trepidatious about going back to school this year. Well, the... I remember as a child, um, the old advice from your teacher or from your parent was, if you didn't run away, they couldn't chase you. Um, uh, and I, I think a, a fair amount of bullying was tolerated. Uh, and uh, teachers turned uh, turned away from it. Uh, principals didn't enforce the rules regarding it. And parents just gave up and thought it was uh, the, the victim's fault or, part, or of growing up. part of growing up. And they had to go through the same thing. We know realize that uh, the bullying can be so harmful that can lead to school absences and school failures. It can lead to um, changed visions of what a person can or can't do with their life. And so we've got to take it seriously and and have a zero tolerance policy to the action and behavior. Frequently, the child who's bullying needs just as much help as the child being bullied. And, uh, and frankly, turning a blind eye to it is leaving two people to suffer 
maybe differently, but we've got to really work on it. So our policy as parents, teachers, and physicians should be, this is unacceptable. We've got to get adults involved, and adults have to take care of things. And do you think the school is doing a pretty good job of uh, keeping kids from bullying or helping the parents in that I think it depends on the teachers and the principals at the individual school, and they need the parents' help to bring these things to light. And the parent needs to recognize when a teacher is over his head or over her head and needs a principal involved. Um, I think for the most part, uh, uh, we were very fortunate uh, to have uh, good, strong public schooling where you can count on the principal to take this very seriously. But just as in all professions, we have young people uh, who are entering the job market, taking on jobs where they may not have this experience of an older teacher uh, and and may not be as equipped for a particular personality or type. Uh, And that's where the parent needs to work with the school, the teacher, and with the principal and not just throw up their hands and say nothing can be done about this. Uh, You mentioned establishing or getting back to some good sleep habits uh, before the summer is over. What about hygiene habits? And is now a good time to go back? Let's practice washing our hands again. (laughs) I think so. I think uh, hand washing with soap and water uh, is a mainstay of keeping a lot of germs away from us. And I say that knowing that the hands are the filthiest part of a person's body. Uh, it picks up other germs from other human beings and keeps them alive at body temperature until you bring them up to your eyes, nose, or mouth. Parents should demonstrate great hand-washing habits. They should say things like, I'm going to go wash my hands with soap and water before I get things out of the refrigerator for the meal. Or they say, okay, that was a great meal. I'll take out the garbage. Up, oh, i got to wash my hands now that I've taken out the garbage. And just <laughs> make it clear to the child that hand-washing is something that goes on through the day. And uh, I think it's very helpful with you know making sure there's soap in uh, the dispenser or bars of soap <laughs> at the sink, that there's clean towels in the child. You know, and parents know when their children have washed their hands or not. They can use their um, their ESP rather than ask the child a question that only Let puts a child. Yeah. <laughs> Let me smell your hands. Yeah. Only puts a child in a, a chance or an opportunity to lie. I would say instead, say, "I know you didn't wash your hands. You go back in there and wash your hands, and then explain to them it's your hands that are going to bring the child next to you's germs up to your mouth, eyes, or, or that." So, you know, frankly, at the end of the day, I even impar- encourage parents at the end of daycare when they bring the child home to have them wash their hands with soap and water. And it's a good habit for parents to demonstrate and talk about. There's another type of hygiene we should talk about, too. We know that parents struggle with issues of overeating and children's weight concerns and issues with body image. One very aggressive, proactive approach parents can take starting now in August is start having a family meal once a day at least, where everyone in the family sits down and eats a meal together. Oh, we dream of having three meals together, <laughs> but that's, that's actually for many parents a moonshot. But if they could start today saying, okay, from now on until the beginning of school, we're going to have one family meal together where we all sit down, having washed our hands, and have a simple meal together. And I'm not talking about buying processed foods from a fast food store. I'm talking about either having sandwiches or something made at home that the family can enjoy around the table as something that represents good nutrition and a good habit for the children to take into the school year. All right. Wash your hands and make sure you have one family meal 
together every day. We're talking about back to school for America's youth with Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Bob Jacobson. Time for a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what the criteria are that parents should use for deciding when to keep their child home, when they're too sick to go to school, and we'll give you an update on immunizations that are required before school, during school, and before you go to college. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Robert Jacobson, who's an expert on everything you need to know about sending your child back to school. We've talked about the importance of hygiene. We've talked about bullying. And we've sleeping, talked about sleeping. Eating together. And we've got everything covered, except uh, we want to ask you about the criteria that parents uh, should use uh, in deciding whether or not their child is too sick to go to school. What, what do you tell you know, for the most part, for most illnesses and injuries, children should be going to school and not staying home. Staying home can be very disruptive uh, to uh, the teacher's program, the curriculum, and the child's sense of what what their main job is during the school year, which is going to school and getting the uh, and getting the work done. I would say. For fevers, true fevers of 100.4 or higher, um, that would be indication that you're coming down with a, a new illness. You're at perhaps your most contagious point. And so I would say for fevers of 100.4 or higher, you should stay home. The, now, I would say that if it, the illness has entered a convalescent stage and you're now recovering, then the child should return to school. Remember, if you're going to be uh, sending your child back to school with uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen to help with the aches and pains of the illnesses, it needs to go with a note, a labeled bottle that uh, demonstrates what's in the bottle, uh, and the child needs to get uh, basically the school's awareness that the child has the medicine, ideally with the school nurse, so the school nurse or the uh, school authorities can look at the child as they take the medicine and decide if the child has become too sick to stay at school, but also get some medicine taken when uh, and appropriately done. Well, if their fever is so bad that they need the acetaminophen to keep the fever down, they probably shouldn't be at school. Right. No, that's more <laughs> acetaminophen for aches and pains, not gotcha. for the fever. Um, but, uh, you know, an illness can leave you with up to 10 to 14 days of symptoms, and we certainly don't want the child staying out that whole length of time. But if the first day uh, is a day of school and there's a fever 100.4 or higher, they should stay home. As the fever uh, regresses, uh, then the child should be back in school. Now, I'm very wary of parents who tell me, well, my child never gets a a fever that high, but they have fevers of 99, and so that's when I draw the line for this child. I would argue that's wrong. We all feel warm and uncomfortable when we're coming down with illnesses, and many of us will run 97 or 97.5 and then get warm with an illness of 99, but that's no warning sign to stay home from school. Uh, Let's draw the line, and a good line would be 100.4. We know that even in the afternoon, an athletic child can run up a temp to 100.4 just from exercise, so it needs to be a sick child who has 100.4. Uh, immunizations. What's required uh, in terms of immunizations to start school? Well, in general, uh, for a child starting kindergarten, they need to have completed their 
DTAP series. That's a diphtheria tetanus pertussis series. They need to have completed their polio series. That's the IPV or inactivated polio virus. They need to have completed two doses of measles, mumps, rubella and two doses of the chickenpox or varicella vaccine. They also need to have completed their four doses of the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine and uh, they need to have completed their three doses of hepatitis B uh, vaccine series. So that's required. And <laughs> before we start you go to school. Before you go to school. Now, we start it at birth. And so if you've been staying on top of your child's schedule, they may actually have a visit, a preschool visit, where they only need two injections. Now... Uh, for those who are uh, busy households, uh, we're talking about the third or fourth child in the household. You might uh, uh, know more than the pediatrician or family physician stopped uh, sticking to the well-child visit schedule. You might find yourself in trouble and needing to do some catch-up work. Uh, and we can work through the catch-up and bring your child up to speed. Uh, our office uses a combination of nurse visits and well-child visits to bring the child up to speed, so it doesn't call for a big, difficult scheduling time. In fact, this uh, summer, we've opened up the office and have some evening and weekend hours as well to get those vaccines in. Uh, what about college kids or high school age kids? Yeah, let's not s- uh, skip the 11 to 12 year olds that uh, should be completing their two meninga, uh, their meningococcal conjugate vaccine at 11 and then again at 16 years of age, uh, Tdap vaccine at 11 years of age, and three doses of the human papillomavirus vaccine uh, by the time they're 13 years of age. We started at nine because we know it's difficult to get in. And did I say three? Yeah, that I was just say, changed in yes. 2017. For children who um, are under 15 and are starting that series, they can take advantage of them having a much more um, uh, dynamic and, and responsive immune system. They only need two doses of HPV vaccine. If somehow you've been delayed and haven't started until age uh, uh, 15, then you're going to need uh, three doses. And so, and then finally, the college kids. College kids are going to need um, uh, another meningococcal vaccine, that 16-year-old vaccine. Uh, and many colleges will say, uh, we're going to need the full record. We're going to need proof of measles, mumps, rubella. We're going to need evidence that you've completed the hepatitis B series. Um, some colleges are going to say, we need that meningococcal B vaccine. Now, that's a, a vaccine that uh, we actually don't have as much evidence or strength for using as a routine recommendation. And so we have choice language that allows it to be offered up to the parent and child or young adult. And then they decide, knowing that uh, uh, the weight of the evidence for that particular vaccine is not enough to justify a routine vaccination. But many of our colleges across the land feel differently and require it. All right. Everything you wanted to know about getting your child ready to go back to school and what immunizations you need as they grow older. Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Robert Jacobson. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the warning signs of depression in children. And later on the program, getting ready for school means developing a good sleep routine. We'll talk kids and sleep with a Mayo Clinic expert. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You are listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
High school sports are gearing up for the fall season, and with that comes the risk of concussions. Mayo Clinic sports medicine specialists have developed a screening program that involves testing brain function skills, such as memory, reaction time, and recall, before the sports season begins. Then, if concussions happen, retesting can determine when it's safe for athletes to return to the game. Now, all kids are at risk of concussions, but again, especially those in contact sports. Dr. Jennifer May- Maynard says the concussion happens when there's a force transmitted to the brain. Dr. Maynard helped initiate the pre-concussion screening program at Mayo Clinic. Before athletes start, they go through testing to determine what's normal. Then, if they get a concussion, they're screened again and can't return to play until their test scores are back to baseline. When in doubt, sit them out um, because you don't want to put them at risk for getting a subsequent injury that could lead to longer-lasting effects. Symptoms of concussion include headache, blurry vision, confusion balance problems, sleep disturbances, and emotional issues such as anxiety and sadness. If you suspect a concussion, pull the child from play and follow up with a health care provider. And in other news, here's a topic for both kids and adults, oral hygiene, keeping your teeth healthy. Good oral hygiene can help you avoid dental cavities and tooth decay. Here's some tips to help prevent cavities. Brush with fluoride toothpaste after eating or drinking at least twice a day. And to clean between your teeth, floss or use an interdental cleaner. Rinse your mouth. If your dentist feels you have a high risk of developing cavities, he or she may recommend that you use a mouth rinse with fluoride. Visit your dentist regularly. Your dentist can recommend a schedule that's best for you. Consider dental sealants. Now, a sealant is a protective plastic coating that's applied to the chewing surface of back teeth. It seals off grooves and crannies that tend to collect food, protecting tooth enamel from plaque and acid. The CDC recommends sealants for all school-aged children. Sealants may last for several years before they need to be replaced, but they need to be checked regularly. Drink some tap water. Most public water supplies have added fluoride, which can help reduce tooth decay significantly. If you drink only bottled water that doesn't contain fluoride, you'll miss out on the fluoride benefits. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, as you know, you've still got kids oh, in boy. school. Well, heading back is a big deal for a lot of kids. And it's common for some kids to be a little, well, let's say apprehensive. But if those feelings of anxiety and or depression don't go away, as a parent, uh, when should you become concerned? According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, one in five teens suffers or will suffer from a mental health condition in their lifetime. Here to discuss teens and mental health is Mayo Clinic pediatric psychiatrist, Dr. Paul Corkin. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Corkin. Thank you for having me. Dr. Corkin, always good to see you. Always glad that you come to talk to us about these difficult problems. And you deal with an interesting population, kids with mental health issues. And we all know that uh, teenagers are moody. He said it, not me. (laughs) And they can be moody from time to time. And I guess the question is, the first question, what's normal and what isn't? It's a great question, and these are these are challenging issues for for teens, parents, and and physicians to sort through. Frankly, as you point out, it's quite normal for uh, the teenage years to be tumultuous and you know ups and downs as far as mood. But in general, what parents I would encourage parents to look for are things in terms of functioning across multiple spheres of teens' lives. Uh, lives, for example, if uh, if uh, teens 
start struggling socially, academically, and are increasingly increasingly more withdrawn and moody at home, uh, declining grades, um, you know, lack dropping out of uh, sports activities as, that they enjoyed previously. And the other the other the other big piece is uh, duration. You know, if this is something that goes on for weeks and weeks, it's much more concerning than it's as you pointed out. It's natural to have you know bumps and concerns early on in school. It's you know it's hard enough for an adult who has got years in the rearview mirror to say, well, there's ups and downs and, you know, depressed and not depressed. And But for a teenager who's just coming into their own awareness, their brain developing to this point, have never experienced anything like this before. What do you say to them to uh, so that they, because I'm sure lots of teenagers are listening to us right now. <laughs> but what do you say to them when it's it's okay if you feel this, but not when this starts to happen? It's a, it's a good question. Um, and again, in general, extremes, extremes in mood, changes in things like sleep, uh, weight, appetite, any kind of suicidal thought. And we do know another staggering statistic is that one in one in five high school students will actually have those kind of thoughts at some point in their school. One in, in five will have suicidal thoughts. Exactly. And the other thing to drive home that's maybe a bit uh, tangential to your point, but the, the, the stigma around these, um, these, these diagnoses and these problems, we encourage, we encourage parents and teenagers to think of depression and anxiety and other mental health or psychiatric problems as they would of any other medical problem like asthma or a broken bone in that, in that you, you, you know, if things are severe enough, you need to seek help, you need to see a physician, and they're, they're treatable, addressable problems. You brought up the, the issue of the suicide. Is it more common than it used to be a, a, among adolescents? It's a complex issue, but yes, there there is um, there is consistent um, evidence and suggestion that the the rate has increased. Uh, for example, we know now, sa- sadly, that it's um, suicide is the second um, second most common cause of death among teenagers. Um, coming coming in after accidents only, um, so again it, it 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 is it is increasing and we are we're doing our best to figure out why and um, how to, how to address this as well. It, it, you, but you don't know why. I mean, it, it, uh, there are theories. I am sure uh, it's a different world. Uh, does social media have anything to do with it? Oh, that's a fascinating and complex question. Um, the honest answer is we we don't know. Um, there are. Um, there are a lot of concerns around that. In general, we try to advise parents on social medias, you know, and teens in, in the same way we would in their interpersonal relationships in terms of, you know, stress management and seeking out moderation and healthy, healthy interactions on um, social media. And it's very important um, for parents to, um, you know, to be attuned to this. And it's often a delicate dance um, in respecting teens and their autonomy and their independence and their need to grow up um, with with the dangers that are out there in terms of you know negative interactions or stressors online. What about uh, anxiety? Uh, is anxiety a bigger problem or is depression a bigger problem? In, in general, that would be a long, could be a long academic debate. <laughs> but in mm-hmm. general, in general, we we uh, mood disorders as a whole are probably more common. We probably under recognize anxiety disorders. Yeah. In fairness, what does that look like in teenagers? Is it the same as adults? It can look it can look the same. Um, other differences are you often often when teens are irritable. That's a sign of anxiety, and that's commonly missed because oh, it's just a just a moody, just cranky, a teen. rebellious mm-hmm. teen. Mm-hmm. That can be a sign of anxiety. 
Um, school attendance is something to pay attention to. If, if your teen or your child is having difficulty getting out of bed and going to school, often that can be a, a sign of uh, different types of anxiety as well. And again, sleep problems, changes in appetite, um, other other physical symptoms as well, headaches, stomach aches. Something that uh, I think the last time Dr. Sawchuk was in here, he spoke with us about uh, skills and not pills. <laughs> so maybe skills and before pills or something along those lines, which has really stuck with me because I, I think maybe sometimes people don't want to talk about it or work on things because it's painful and it's easier to just take a pill. Uh, is that a direction that you work with kids too when, when it comes to skills? And, and it's, it's an excellent point. In terms of treatment, in general, we can even start, I think, a mm-hmm. little bit before skills in terms of what are what I call lifestyle treatments, things like, you know, regular sleeping habits, no small feet for teenagers. I know same bedtime, same get-up time, a healthy peer relationship, structured lives throughout the week, uh, healthy diets, avoidance of all tobacco, alcohol, street drugs, um, and interestingly, uh, daily exercise. Uh, we know now that that actually there's there's really good evidence that neurobiolog- neurobiologically that's very good for your brain and probably protective and tr- and, and a treatment for depression and anxiety. But getting your to your point, yes, um, we, we do think things like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, they've been shown to be very effective for both anxiety disorders and depression. Um, you know, I, I would um, not to not to plug medications too much, right. but I would encourage parents not to shy away from that or be afraid of that if that's if that's something that is recommended. One thing that that has never made a lot of, of sense to me is that I, I know that you use or I think that you use the same kind of medications whether the you diagnose anxiety or depression, and that and the two seem so opposite to me. But there must be some relationship there. You're correct. In general, we use what are called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and we we do know that those are effective for both depression and anxiety. In in kids, interestingly enough, they're probably a little bit more effective for anxiety than depression when you look at large large studies, and and that speaks to the complexities that we mentioned earlier. And and we we have um, a diagnostic system where we identify these problems. It's very complicated, though. Human beings are complicated in that in some cases it's not depression or anxiety. It's a it's a diagnostic entity that encompasses both. What should parents do if they're worried about their child's mental health as they start another school year? Um, as we mentioned, encourage the healthy habits and carve out time every day to, to spend time with their child and talk to their child. And, and if, if there are any concerns, uh, reach out to their primary care physician or psychiatrist or psychologist. We've been speaking with Dr. Paul Crokin. He is a pediatric psychiatrist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Crokin. Thank you, Dr. Chives. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, kids and sleep. We just heard how important that is. We'll find out how to get your student back into a routine and ready for school. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. After a summer of staying up late and sleeping in, a lot of kids, especially teenagers, are out of their school year bedtime routines. The beginning of the school year may just be a rude awakening. <laughs> so how much sleep do kids need to be ready to focus and learn at school? And do they need to start practicing their earlier bedtimes before school begins? Here to discuss kids and sleep on this back-to-school episode is pediatric neurologist Dr. Sheree 
Therese Kodigal. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kodigal. I love to talk about sleep. Oh, thanks so much, <laughs> see, Same here. <laughs> so let's start off by having you tell uh, all of the mothers and fathers out My there. My kids. Yeah. How much sleep do our kids really need? So one uh, way of looking at it is that the amount of sleep that a child needs is that much which will ensure that they're going to be alert and able to function most efficiently during the day. But if we were to try to boil it down to specific numbers, for teenagers, it seems they need about seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep at night. Obviously, well, many babies, they need lots more sleep, mm-hmm. but I think by the time they are teens, they need that much, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought it was even more than that. What Good. time of the 24-hour clock should they be getting that rest? That's the next question. Tom, that's a very important question, and I think that uh, the level of uh, satisfaction one gets from sleep is much more if the sleep were to happen at night rather than uh, uh, partly at night and partly during the daytime. You know, what happens in the day is uh, there's a chink of light coming through the windows, a dog barks or a delivery man shows up. Mm-hmm. So it's really not good quality sleep in the daytime. So we mentioned teenagers. What about the littler kids, the kids at elementary school age? How much sleep should they be getting? They need a bit more of sleep, probably between... Uh, nine to ten hours of sleep, yes. That includes a daytime nap, of course. Mm. And napping is actually uh, quite common in children below the age of three and a half, four years of age. So having one nap a day would be pretty important for them. Now, we've heard uh, previously that teenagers' sleep cycle may be a little bit different and that um, it's been recommended that school for teenagers or high schoolers not start so early in the morning. Is that true? Uh, Tom, yeah, absolutely. And uh, there are now studies uh, which uh, have established that uh, teenagers are actually sleepy when they are driving to school or when they're on the school bus going to sleep. They, most of them are asleep. And uh, by the time their brains are really wide awake to receive the instruction that the teachers are giving, it's about 8.30 or 9. And now the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American Academy of Pediatrics have come out in favor of delaying the school start times to uh, 8.30 or 9 o'clock. And this seems to have, if the school start time is delayed, it seems to have a positive influence on the child's ability to stay alert, pay attention, learn more, have fewer behavioral problems in the daytime. And I think it also makes the teacher's job easier (laughs) because they're dealing with students who are alert and actually participating in the educational endeavor. School-age kids that are younger, you know, like elementary school kids, they do on average, get tired and they're ready to go to bed at what their parents would consider their bedtime. But teenagers, their body clock works against them. That's the big kicker on this. You're right. So in some ways, uh, we're talking about teenagers uh, entering a perfect storm sort of situation because their body needs at least seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep for optimum alertness on one hand. And then on the other hand, um, they've got... uh, after school activities, be athletics or two hours of homework, and then after that they have to uh, chat with their friends uh, on cell phone mm-hmm. or uh, otherwise. Uh, so by the time they're really settled down to fall asleep, it's about almost midnight, mm-hmm. and then they've got to be up by 5.30 or 6. And uh, studies from Brown University indicated that girls, teenage girls, usually wake up about a half hour 
uh, prior to boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so girls are actually in far more uh, ah. difficulty because of that. So their body needs more sleep, and yet uh, their schedules are such that they don't allow for it. Mm. And then we also know that teenagers are more prone to depression, more prone to accidents, behavioral issues, mood swings, etc. So sleep loss can certainly make children mm. feel a little bit sad, anxious, on the edge. Sleep loss also interferes with reaction time. Just imagine one is going at 60 miles per hour and you get a momentary lapse or a micro sleep for four or five seconds. Boom, you could be off the road very easily. So I think there's increased propensity for depression. And now we also know that there is a link between short sleep and obesity. So when children receive less sleep, they may be making themselves more vulnerable to increased weight gain as well. Is there any evidence that cell phones have interfered with teenager sleep? Thomas, it's quite likely that happens, although I'm not aware of a study which has linked uh, the cell phone exposure to insomnia. But but I think what likely might be happening is that, first of all, the content of what they are viewing on the cell phone might be activating or exciting. The other issue is that the light by itself, from the light from the electronic device uh, might suppress melatonin secretion and melatonin is that uh, hormone that the body normally produces close to bedtime and uh, melatonin rise in the bloodstream facilitates sleep onset so i mean if you have light then the melatonin gets shut down then we have the activating influence from the the content itself yes there so there is likely a risk then the other issue i would think is if one is sitting down with an electronic device there might also be perhaps a tendency to imbibe some caffeine, which could also mm-hmm. <laughs> have an activating influence. I would think. Some parts of the country are starting school the middle of August. Some parts don't wait until after Labor Day. Sure. But uh, should we be letting our kids sleep as late as they want, or should we start getting them ready to be waking up earlier again? There's a lot riding on this at my house, Dr. Kotoff. <laughs> they should be up in the morning going to work. <laughs> so what should we do? Uh, Tracy, that's a very important question, and uh, I think it comes up in most households with teenagers. And um, I think that uh, gradually, maybe once every two to three days, if we can advance the morning wake-up time. In other words, if it is 9.30, make it 9 o'clock for two, <laughs> three days, and then from there to 8.30 and uh, and so on. I, I think that would be uh, and starting this process about two to two and a half weeks prior to the, the day one of school would be a good idea. Uh, remember that uh, light exposure in the morning, a flood of light, whether it is sunlight or even a light box, a flood of light in the morning has a mentally activating uh, quality to it. So I think exposure in the morning to that, taking the dog out for a walk, if it's you know just a physical activity, exposure to sunlight, light exercise, warm shower, all of these are alerting activities and they should happen in the morning. Teenagers should stop, should avoid taking any naps during the day because when they do, they're just borrowing from night's sleep and dissipating the sleep pressure. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's your, your point is well taken. We should start maybe about two, two and a half weeks prior to the uh, school opening t- day. Done. Yeah. Yep, get them up, get them clapping. <laughs> <It'll happen. laughs> All right. Kids in Sleep with pediatric and neurologist sleep expert, Dr. Suresh Kodagal. So the bottom line is teenagers need seven and a half, eight hours of sleep, and it's best to get it at night. Surprising. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for being with us. Almost. Thanks for having me. 
And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.